I'm Sam Freeman, and this is Practicing. A little over two years ago, two good friends of mine, whose daughter Farah was born just a few weeks before my daughter was, came to me with concerns about their baby. Farah was about nine months old, and at a routine checkup, her doctor had found that her weight gain had slowed. When her mother, Vanessa, reached out to me about this, I wasn't too worried. So often in pediatrics, health concerns turn out to be nothing, or small hiccups that get better on their own. Not to mention the fact that I hated to imagine that my friend's baby could be sick. But once I saw Farah's growth curve and heard all the details of her symptoms, including the fact that she was fussy and always thirsty, constantly soaking her diapers, and preferred water to her mother's milk, I was alarmed. So I arranged to have Farah seen by a colleague and tested at the clinic where I work. Within a few weeks, it emerged that something was very wrong with Farah. She was losing everything through her kidneys. Water, electrolytes, sugars, proteins. Once that was clear, Farah was hospitalized, and as you'll hear from her parents, Vanessa Bono and Sylvan Lankin, she was diagnosed with cystinosis, a rare genetic disease that causes the amino acid cysteine to build up in every cell of a person's body over time. Farah's diagnosis was devastating. Cystinosis is degenerative, and though it can be managed and treated with a tremendous amount of work, there is no cure. Over the last three years, I've seen Farah and her parents struggle, but I've also seen her grow up, stabilize, and play with my daughter like any other child. I wanted to speak to Vanessa and Sylvan about their experience, about their interactions with the health system, and the cataclysm that Farah's diagnosis has represented for them. My intuition was that many people, including me, would benefit from hearing their story, and after recording our conversation, I'm more convinced of that than ever. In addition to being Farah's parents, Vanessa Bono is a writer and editor, and Sylvan Lankin is a musician who also works in higher education. The following interview isn't easy to listen to at times, and it deals with very difficult themes, so please be warned. But I do encourage you to listen if you can. Vanessa and Sylvan brought all of their humanity and openness to this interview, and as a result, it is a gift. And now, here's my conversation with Vanessa Bono and Sylvan Lankin. Vanessa Bono, Sylvan Lankin, welcome to Practicing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm really, really grateful that you've agreed to come on and talk to us about your family. So I wanted to start with asking you, maybe Vanessa, to tell me about Farah's diagnosis and how you came to realize that she was sick. So she was diagnosed when she was 10 months old. And it was the first winter of the pandemic. Things had started to be seeming off with her for a couple months, I would say. It was hard to tell, though, because we, she's our first and only child, didn't know that much about kids. 
there weren't that many people around. Like, you're our good friend, you're a pediatrician, but we only ever saw each other outside due to um, pandemic restrictions and common sense. So finally, the thing that really brought us to the emergency room or brought us actually to your clinic for a blood test and a urine test that sent us to the emergency room was that her weight was dropping, which everyone knows is like not what should be happening with a 10-month-old. Right. And so what did those tests conclude? What did you learn? Oh, yeah. So very quickly, within a a day or two, they diagnosed her with Fanconi syndrome, which is a kidney disease. Yeah, kidney disease. And at first they weren't sure, I guess, before telling us the bigger diagnosis, which is called cystinosis, which is a rare disease. They wanted to make sure and how they checked was by looking in her eyes and finding crystals. And then they said, we're going to absolutely confirm with a blood test. And a few days later, they absolutely confirmed. And I remember then you spent some time in the hospital and then you were able to go home. That was over two years ago now. Sylvan, what has Farah's diagnosis meant for your lives day to day? Can you tell us a little bit about the care you have to provide for her on a daily basis? Yeah, the day-to-day is, the day-to-day gets easier every day, but in the beginning it was a nightmare. Um, Vanessa and I have given a talk a couple of times to a cystinosis conference, an annual conference, where we've been asked to speak to give our experience. And something that Vanessa wrote into our talk was this thing where you're at the hospital, we were there for two and a half weeks, after the diagnosis and they stabilized Farah and got her, got her stabilized and hydrated and then sent us home with a, a list of meds, medications for Farah to take at set times during the day. But she would just throw up all the time. You know, we didn't have any experience. We didn't, we weren't told which meds were hard on her stomach. You know, should she have some food in her stomach when she's getting these uh, meds? That's the kind of thing that we just had to figure out on our own and with the help of other people we met online with cystinosis kids. It just took a long time after they stabilized her in the hospital to stabilize our routine Mm -hmm. is essentially what I'm trying to say. But tell me like how many times a day did she need to get medication? Oh, I think initially it was, well, they they added more medications as time went by, but I think shortly after we got home, it was probably 15 or 20 times a day. Mm -hmm. We'd be giving her an injection. Um, these are all liquid med- medications in liquid form that we gave her through a tube in her nose. How many medications does she take? Different medications? Yeah. She takes... Shall we count them? Lansoprazole, <laughs> sodium phosphate, potassium citrate, sodium bicarbonate, uh, cystamine, indomethacin, what am I forgetting? Carnitine. Iron. Iron. Growth hormone. Growth hormone. Calcitriol. Cal... Is that what it's called now? Mm-hmm. Uh, t- ten, 10 or 12, I'm right. going to say. And most of these are to counteract the effects of her disease on her kidneys for now. And then... The cystamine is, to, is the only drug that works somewhat towards managing the cystinosis. And the rest of them 
are yeah meds that just uh, replace her lost electrolytes, and then the stomach coders, yeah, to manage the effects of a couple of the other drugs. The first time Farah was diagnosed wasn't her last time in the hospital. How many times have you had to stay in hospital with her? Oh, we only had the the first extended long stay, which was two and a half weeks. She's been hospitalized three other times. No, I think it's like two, six or seven. For gastros? Yeah. She was hospitalized probably for two or three gastros. Mm-hmm. Right. Any small virus that most kids would usually tough out at home could make her dehydrated? A little bit, but it's really the, the gastrointestinal issues that cause the dehydration, the serious dehydration, which we can't manage at home. And do you have help at home? Providing all the care that Farrah needs? No, we have babysitters. We've had sort of a rotating cast of people help look after her, who we've trained in in giving the medications, but no, no... Uh... We had six hours for a year or two of free... Twice a week. Yeah, two, three-hour chunks. But she was... She, she wasn't a nurse. She was effectively a babysitter who knew how to give the meds. Right. And so you're doing all of this yourselves and each having to work at the same time? Yeah. V- Vanessa, you're going to go back to work around the time that Farrah was diagnosed. Yeah. Around was... 10 months. So it was about a year in. And I was working. But then Vanessa extended her mat leave for six months. And I quit my job uh, for about, I don't think I worked for a year. Is that possible? Yeah. While well, we tried to figure out how to take care of her. So, Vanessa, what's the, this is a big question, but to give the listeners an idea, what has the impact been on your home life, your career, your sleep, your ability to, you know, have hobbies, see friends of all of this? I imagine it's been huge. Yeah, I think it touches all those areas sort of in different, but I guess comparable ways. So what was the first one? Or home life. Well, yeah, I mean, at first, Farah, we brought her to the hospital. It's kind of like what you think is up is down. Like your kid needs to eat, but she won't eat. She needs to tolerate her meds, but she throws up. She needs to drink water, like crazy amount, like a lot of water. You know, right now she drinks between four to five liters in 24 hours. And, you know, I drink two maybe. Um, and she's three years old. I mean, Yeah. Yeah. So our lives just became taking care of Farah. So all those things that you mentioned take a back seat. And at first you think that it's okay that they're in the back seat, but that doesn't actually work forever. <laughs> you can't just never see your friends, never go back to work, uh, never sleep. <laughs> Although um, Farah still needs medicine every six hours. So Sylvan and I, we take turns getting up in the night um, to give her meds, so her sleep still is compromised. But yeah, basically all those things are really compromised and still are, although it's better. Can I say something dark? When we totally didn't have a life for the first year, especially for, say, the first six months after diagnosis, it didn't even bother me that much that we didn't have that we didn't have a life anymore because I kind of... We talked about this a couple times that... <laughs> You know, we were sort of had suicidal thoughts, like family suicide kind of thing. Like it kind of, 
Well, we wished we were dead. We wished we were dead. So, like, it didn't really matter that the future was sort of... That you couldn't see a future because you didn't care. Right, like, going out to have fun, like, was irrelevant. You know, I think they've... I don't know anything about suicide, but they've talked about this. People don't have... A sign is people not making plans. Mm. Sometimes. But we always sort of reined it in for Farah, like even well, yeah, the, the no, conversation. It wasn't we were we weren't always. We didn't only have dark thoughts, but I found the evenings extremely difficult. I just dreamed of being in any other part of my life. I even fantasized about being in really embarrassing episodes of my life past, which were horrifying at the time, but were like a thousand times better than than the reality. That sounds so hard. I mean, I know, I know from being your friend how hard it's been. I'm conscious, though, as you said that, Vanessa, that you were reining it in for Farah, of maybe filling in the picture a bit of who Farah is, because I think so far it just makes it sound like mm-hmm. she needs a lot of medication and she she does have a serious health condition, but... Give us a sense at age three what Pharaoh's like. <laughs> well, you you know, I like to think that, you know, she walks or runs or rides her scooter down the street and you, you don't know that something is like very wrong with her body and a progressive, so it'll just get worse. So physically she's petite because of her kidney disease and I guess because of cystinosis too. But she's quite strong and muscular. She loves like climbing at the park and riding her scooter. She's funny, <laughs> um, energetic, hates napping, says a lot of funny things like, you know, like your daughter, like all three-year-olds. Um, right. My daughter, Amy, is three and they're friends and they just play together. There's no, There's no difference between them. I mean, there are the normal differences you'd expect between two kids who are different. But what other kinds of things does she do now? Well, we had her in a daycare, but it was like a large daycare. And at that phase in the pandemic, as you know, the viruses were at daycares were just like bananas. Like, you know, kids so sick in the summer. And Farah, it was wonderful when she was at daycare and healthy, but every second week she would be struck down by like a really difficult virus that would have Sylvan and I barely keeping her out of the hospital just because we would have to, um, you know, manage her fluid intake ourselves with a, with a pump or just with syringes. Uh, we'd have to make the call of which medicines do we stop giving her that are difficult to tolerate. And it was Sylvan's idea to take her out of daycare and it was a wonderful idea. So now she, we have babysitters and family members and she goes to like an outdoor forest school program two mornings a week she started summer camp (laughs) they call it that but you know a a morning program of summary activities (laughs) and so she's registered for a preschool in september a small preschool that has a bit more of a strict uh, illness protocol so hopefully the kids are a little less sick when they come in and they're older they're three to five so hopefully it'll be less of a festival of germs and we're hoping it'll go well and thinking it will. But, you know, if ever it doesn't, we can just withdraw her. Yeah. And then eventually she'll go to school when that time comes. Yeah. There's a couple kids with cystinosis that I've seen are homeschooled. Mm. Well, one I can think of. 
I personally don't imagine that for Farah, but um, I think one thing we've learned is, you know, just... Don't make any plans. Don't make plans and don't assume and just try to try to be really... Uh, not have no expectations, but have no expectations, maybe. Mm-hmm. Having a child is a huge shock to a relationship. I think it transforms, you know, a partnership or marriage, whatever. How have you both weathered not only having Farah, but dealing with all the extra tumult and pain and work that has come with this experience? I think weathered is the right word. We're weathered. <laughs> the relationship is highly weathered. The word I that comes to mind for me is erosion. <laughs> erosion is a form of weathering. weathering yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're working on it, though. Yeah, we're trying. We're trying. It's really hard when every day is like really stressful and you have a lot of decisions to make that are important and feel very important in the moment about the health of your child. Which I think any parents have to work together and make decisions for the what's in their kid's best interest. But for Sylvan and I, it was like, it was just very extreme. Like, one thing about cystinosis is that these kids vomit a lot, which is messy, bad for them. Then they lose their meds. You're always in the beginning very concerned about calories because they're not really getting their caloric intake because their appetite is ruined. I don't know. They don't have an appetite. And often it's, you do something, like you give a medicine or you give um, a a bolus of water or Pedialyte and your child vomits. And it's very easy in those moments to blame each other. You blame yourself, you blame the other person, you wish you'd never met them. It's particularly easy to blame at four in the morning when, when the kid vomits in their crib. And then you know that you have like another hour of cleanup and the kids screaming and somehow you have to re-give the meds you just gave, which made them barf. So and yeah, it, there's an awful lot of stress. And it means you might be going to the hospital because then you're sort of in that right mode of trying to prevent the hydration from her hydration from getting so bad that you have to go to the hospital. Yeah, if she throws up too much then the the rule is you just go to the emergency. I mean that dynamic of blame, I I've recently become aware of that in my own relationship uh, around child rearing and with all kinds of things, you know. Oh, they didn't put down the limits enough on that tantrum or they're coddling her on this. With us, the stakes are, you know, they feel high, but they're the stakes of having a toddler. So when the stakes are so much greater, I can only imagine how amplified the the animosity can be. Do you think there are ways it's brought you closer? Well, for me, I think it's opened our minds to a certain reality of the world that I didn't really know existed. You probably knew it existed a bit more as a doctor. Just the reality that a lot of people, a lot, or some people live with, of chronic illness, of losing the genetic lottery. Ferris condition is a genetic one. So maybe in a way that brought us closer. Like now we both know more about cystinosis and rare diseases and 
suffering? Maybe. I mean, it's knowledge that I'm perfectly happy to say I wish I'd never gained. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's given us a shared experience. You know that famous question, would you do it all again? Mm-hmm. Knowing what you know now? No, I wouldn't. I mean, I'm not saying no, no, not with fine. you. I just mean like I, if I had the choice to have a kid with cystinosis, I mean. It's possible to have your daughter and love her and never want anything to happen to her and to still recognize that this is not an outcome that one would choose. I don't see a, a contradiction in that, actually. No. And there's the, there's the great expression, the parent trap, you know, the, when you have your kid and you, you know, maybe the first time you're unhappy or in a, a bad mood or a depressed or something after having had a kid and it doesn't have to be a sick kid, but just that realization that you're, you're trapped. You're a parent now. You have to look after this thing mm-hmm. for as long as you live. I mean, that's. That's hard. And every every parent goes through that, I imagine. I think it affects some more than others. This certainly amplifies that, I have to say. When you are feeling sorry for yourself and you're lost, you know, some other fork in the universe that you don't... Yeah. But what you said, Sam, about... Um just in your family, you know, how it's easy to blame about, like, a kind of normal toddler thing. Like, I still feel that, you know? And sometimes I find that frustrating. Like, we still have to deal with Farah being a normal, annoying toddler, you know, pu- like, puzzling us with a tantrum or refusing to sleep. And it, even that is, like, it's still stressful. Like, I wish somehow I'd be like, oh, it's nothing for us because we, she has cystinosis, so we don't have to deal with the normal toddler stuff, but we still have to deal with all that stuff and in our relationship and with her. Yeah. It's like your tolerance for horrible outcomes is bigger because you have more, we have cystinosis to deal with now, but you're still, you know, I'm still a hair trigger. If Farrah throws her water bottle, it's ridiculous. It doesn't, it, it moves only the high end of the bar, not the low end too. No, you say it. it's ridiculous, but it, it makes so much sense. There are like two tracks. Almost two worlds, maybe even. I don't know. Sometimes if it feels that way. With your routine, like, really generally controlled and smooth, then it's almost like there's more space for all the regular irritants to take over. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is kind of a joyous thing to say out loud. but Yeah, and that's good. That's good. And sometimes I can be like, <laughs> Farrell will be like making me really mad. Or, you know, really testing my patience. And I'll, be, I'll just be like, well, thank God we're not at the hospital. <laughs> I don't know, which sounds dark, but... Yeah, that makes sense. I was just wondering if one of you could give listeners a sense very broadly of what there is to expect 
in a life with cystinosis? Well, it begins with Fanconi, which is this insatiable thirst and polyuria and all that stuff. So there's kidney damage. That's the, the, that's the first sign. That's usually what gets the diagnosis. And then as Vanessa said, there's an eye exam, which they use to confirm the diagnosis of cystinosis, where they see cysteine crystals in the cornea. And those crystals will eventually build up in the eye to the point where the cornea will get cloudy. It'll just scatter light and it makes the kids, uh, the kids makes any person with cystinosis photophobic. So that's further down the road. Some kids seem affected by it early on. Farah so far is not. So they have to wear sunglasses. When you go to these conferences, you see all the people with cystinosis. If they're outside, they're all in sunglasses. They all have water bottles. They all have to drink a lot of water. Later on, there's issues with muscle loss. Because of the Fanconi, there's rickets. Skin. Skin is affected. It affects every cell in the body. It affects every cell in your body. So yeah, everything is kind of degrading. And at different points, those different things come into play. But, you know, when, when we are at these conferences where we'll see 20 or 30 people with cystinosis, you'll see a bunch of kids, say at like 12 or 15 years old, some of them look, you, you can't tell they haven't, and others look like they've had a much harder time. And with Farah, we're like, we have no idea, you know. Kidney transplant is a given, somewhere between 5 and 25 Seems to be mostly in the teens. Some people are able to go into the early 20s. I don't know. And in terms of school, studies, work, relationships? No obvious learning disabilities that are... There are some neurological effects from cystinosis, and there are some studies about it, but nothing that not, nothing obvious. We've spoken to a bunch of adults and kids who have it, and they're like, well, in the in the literature, they do mention it. Certainly, in practice, the... there's. I'm not sure that that variation in like learning ability is any bigger than it would be in a natural population. There are women, women with cystinosis who've had kids. It's not that common, but they do. Some of the boys, I think, the majority, possibly, of the boys are will, will be infertile. There is this general consensus that it's harder on boys than it is on girls. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if that's. I don't know how true that is, but... Vanessa, you mentioned that when Farrah's playing, if she's out riding her scooter, you can't really tell that she has anything in particular. However, I know that you end up having to maybe decide to explain or not to explain Farrah's condition to people. Mm -hmm. How do you talk to people about that? Mm, try to read the room <laughs> try to read like how crazy is this person <laughs> no i don't know well first of all oh one thing i don't did i say she's very blonde no okay so she's very blonde Sylvan and i are not blonde because cystinosis affects your ability to produce melanin so she's very blonde and many of the children are not all of them many of the children are caucasian and blonde but and pale and pale but not all of them so sometimes Sylvan and I have had disagreements about this. So people at the park or just people will say to us, will feel the need to comment, whatever, say, wow, she's so blonde. Well, she's strikingly blonde. Mm-hmm. 
She has blonde ringlets. Can I say that? Yes. Yeah. Some currently dreads. Currently I'm blonde dreads. Blonde dreads. <laughs> right, and, and it's like big hair, like little girl, big curly dreads. Yeah. So sometimes Sylvan, he's in the mood. He'll say, "Well, actually, she's blonde because she has a genetic disease." And I'm just like, Sylvan, you have to yeah, really launch a, into it. A source of a source of argument between us. Which I'm so sorry. Vanessa doesn't like if I launch into that explanation. But I feel like it's easier than trying to convince them that she's actually our daughter. <laughs> what don't you like about it? They're they're meeting her and the only thing they know about her is she's blonde and she's sick. You know? I mean, it's probably what every parent wants to say. Like, she has cystinosis, but, like, it's almost... Right now in her life, it's more like Sylvan and I have to care for her cystinosis, and she's just, like, living her life. Or that's my, like, fantasy. But no, other times, you know, sometimes she has a gastrostomy tube so that we can give medicine, liquid medicines or hydration or liquid or water or Pedialyte right into her tummy. So sometimes, and she loves changing her clothes and being naked. So sometimes, you know, at the pool or whatever, or if she's hanging on monkey bars, that gets revealed to people. So then children or parents will just be like, what is that? To be fair, most parents don't say, what is that? The kids do. Right. So then I'll say like, oh, we use it to give her some medicines she needs. And in the way that kids are so like a simplified existence somehow like you'll say oh that's a little it's like a little thing we use to give her medicine into her stomach and they're like okay <laughs> that's all explanation they need you know and do you talk to farah about cystinosis we talk about it every day not necessarily with her about it but she's definitely she's a couple times asked us what's cystinosis and I haven't bothered trying to explain it to her. Well, I think I told her it's the reason she has to take medicine. She's aware that she has a G-tube and every other kid she sees doesn't. So, yeah, we're all like, it's time for your meds. You know, you got to sit down. You can keep playing, but just, you know, two minutes, we just have to give you some medicine. And she sees that her best friends are not, you know, your daughter doesn't have to do that. Her little cousin who's around her same age doesn't have to do that. So... She hasn't asked us about that specifically, but I mean, it's... It's coming. She did say to me, so six nights of the week, she gets a a needle growth hormone. And the other day she just said to me, Madison, she said, not everyone gets the needle. And I was like, correct. (laughs) And we just left it at that. So I want to explain to her. And so it's, it's starting. I mean, she's three. Yeah. You know, hopefully by the time she's old enough to understand a bit about cystinosis, we'll have a better handle on what it is. Mm. Like we, when we first got the diagnosis, the doctors were like, you know, we're explaining cystinosis to you, but soon you're going to be the experts. And I figured that it was just a bit of like, don't worry, you can handle this kind of thing from the doctors. But actually, we do know more, at least in her, in Ferris' context. Yeah, so that's really interesting that you'd say that because, Vanessa, we've talked about that before. Kind of the fact that because cystinosis is such a rare disease, the st- 
statistics I have are that there are maybe 600 kids in North America who are affected, one in every 100,000 to 200,000 children. So it's, it's really rare. Most healthcare providers don't know much about it. And if they do, it's like me, like they know it because they learned it once for an exam. They kind of have a vague idea what it is, but they have no sense of the lived experience of having it or caring for someone with it. And I think that can even be the case, if I'm remembering what you've told me, with some of the kidney experts who are generally with kids, the, the specialist doctors who will be dealing with patients with cystinosis the most. So you end up really becoming the experts and having to ignore even some medical advice you're given, like about how to administer meds, which you were talking about. And some of the most helpful life-changing tips you've gotten have been not from healthcare providers at all, but from other parents. Is that right? Can you tell me a little more about like how that dynamic plays out? Well, okay, it is right, but I think it's also like our doctor and our team, our nephrology team, she's very open to like what we learn from at the conferences or from other nephrologists who are more specialized in cystinosis. Cuz like we can't be going rogue either. There is this sort of uh, narrative in the maybe the rare disease community or the cystinosis community of like that sometimes hedges towards like you know better than your doctors. Like, whoa, I wouldn't say that. But sometimes we learn things like a new way to do something that then we'll bring to our doctor and be like, what do you think about this? Mm. Sometimes we've had to push a bit. Farah for a long time was on, I'm going to call it a pump at night that would just pump water or pediolate into her tummy through a tube attached to her gastrostomy tube. And this was like very negative for our family. Farah had to be sleeping. Then we would attach it. It meant she was like tethered. This thing, it's a machine. So it beeps. It has neon lights. uh, It malfunctions in the middle of the night. Wakes everybody up. And she would sometimes get... Sometimes it would go around her neck. Sometimes the tube would be wrapped around her neck. This is like a you know a three or four foot extension tube, and it was around her neck in the morning. I understand it was giving her hydration, and hydration is like what she needs. When no other families are really on it, so we were like, "Come on, we can't be the only ones on it. It's ruining our lives." So yeah, there is this thing where you just need to have a medical team that's like very open to what you're learning if you're the kind of family that's going to be researching and speaking to other families. I like to learn from a family, but then sometimes I also get to a point where I'm like, okay, that's just like their family way of doing things. And like, that doesn't necessarily apply to us. Or like, I don't take advice from other non-medical families. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like this balancing act, basically. Right. So, Sylvan, tell me a little bit about the experience of getting to know a community around cystinosis. I think it was a little over a year ago, you both went for the first time to California to this annual conference, and you've since returned. So what was that like to be introduced to this group of people? Well, like anything these days, we first started learning after the diagnosis by looking online. 
you know, doing some Googling, reading the horrible life expectancy stuff and, you know, the papers written about cystinosis over the decades. And then you find the groups, the support groups, Facebook groups and, and whatnot. And you start seeing the same because, as you pointed out earlier, the community is so small, you start seeing the same people showing up at, in all these different photos at these different events. You're like, oh, there's that kid again. And there's that group of 20 kids. And, and yeah, the Cystinosis Research Foundation in California, there, there are a few foundations. They're sort of the biggest. And their whole existence is based around raising money for research. And they, they've raised millions of dollars for research, for researchers. And you, you, and you start seeing the same 10 or 15 researchers. And you, you meet them at the conferences. The conferences are, you meet the families, but you also have unfettered access to the rock stars of the, the cystinosis research community. And you can talk to them and you're sitting at the dinner table with them and they're just, they're all nice. They all give you the time. You know, I mean, I'm sure this is something you think about a lot in medicine generally is this sort of this patient to doctor time, you know, can often be so short when you're going for a checkup or you feel sick and you see your doctor, you're lucky if you get five minutes with them. You might feel unfulfilled, at least from a patient side. So at this thing, you're seeing these people who are like really the world experts and they'll just talk to you for as long as you want. But yeah, so the first time we went, April 2022, we'd been seeing for a year all these faces of all these people online, these researchers, the kids, the families. And when we first walked into that conference room at this hotel and you see these people in the flesh and you're like, you see the kids running around like normal kids. You know they have cystinosis. You've read about their struggles, but they seemed they they seemed okay. And you see a kid who's three. You see a kid who's two, the same age as Farah at the time. You saw a kid who's three, five, twelve, eighteen, twenty-five, and for the most part, they looked okay. So I mean, that was that was extremely um, I don't know. It was life altering, almost as life altering as the diagnosis. Would you agree, Nessie? <laughs> Yeah, it's just, I think I've said to you, Sam, it's just kind of amazing. It's like a really unique experience to meet these people that are very different from you, culturally, or just just very different from you. But you share this, like the biggest thing that's ever happened in your life. And everyone has the same story. Yeah. Everyone has the same diagnosis story. Doesn't matter your socioeconomic background or situation, Everyone's kid was diagnosed, started failure to thrive somewhere between eight and 12 months. They got thirsty. They only wanted to drink water. They peed a lot. They didn't eat. They started throwing up, you know? So like, it just gives you this, um, this amazing common, not playbook, but like this common history you have with all these people who otherwise you would never meet. I mean, and just to say, like, there's still like... You know, I never really bring up politics or... But it still overall is amazing to just meet these people and cry and laugh about... It sounds cheesy, but just about the, the your experience with this rare disease and trying to keep your kid healthy. And there's also adults there. And, that, and so meeting adults, some in relationships, some with kids, some very successful, some really now facing serious health problems... And then people in the community die. Like, we already have met people. And it's... Like, they're all young, you know? Like, under 50, under 30. 
So death is also a very big part of the community. Mm. I'm thinking about something you you wrote to me not too long ago that Farah's illness or your experience of her illness, you called it your island. And hearing you both talk about meeting this group kind of makes me think like at that moment there's a little bridge to the island or the island is not so far from some other islands there's a little bit less isolation we're all on an island and it could be a reality tv show it's an archipelago sort of what you're making it sound like um yeah it can be very isolating as i've written to you also just the feeling of how deeply unlucky we are I actually, this is something I would like to, for my own curiosity, look more into, like exactly how unlucky we are. I don't know, somehow, sometimes it's nice to just relate to numbers, you know, like, I don't know how many people carry, are carriers of this genetic condition as Sylvan and I are, but you know, Sylvan and I had to, we each had to be carriers, then we had to meet, then we had to have a baby, and then every baby we have, it's a one in four chance that baby has cystinosis. So I think part of the reason I sometimes feel I'm on an island, as I've said to you, is just I just feel so unlucky. But at the same time, this experience has also made me feel lucky in that it's also made me think about how much more unlucky I could be. Just spending time at a children's hospital makes you feel grateful, I think. But yeah, it's been isolating. Do you think about luck? Sylvan? Who doesn't think about luck? You know, speaking of being carriers of this gene, what I kind of think about a lot is unless the, the, the gene spontaneously mutated in us, we got the bad gene, each got one copy of the bad gene from one of our parents. We've been tested. We know which variants. There's dozens or hundreds of variants of this broken ctns gene but i you know i got it from my mom or my dad nessie got it from her mom or her dad that someone in our lineages that some family members of ours were there any other parents who had kids with cystinosis at some point you know in the old days kids died young often unexplained you know maybe it was typhoid maybe it was one of those things you read about, but maybe there was a cystinosis death somewhere. Like, I, I think about also, like, walking down the street. I must walk by people, carriers, who also have a bad CTNS gene. I just don't have children with them. Can I just say something odd? Oh, yeah. I know what you're going to say. Two things. My sister gave me a book to read called uh, Sahara Unveiled. An interesting book about the Sahara. This, this American's explorations of the Sahara. The people who live there his own experiences. It's just a book of history of the Sahara of colonial exploration and this constant underlying theme in these, in these stories that he recounts are of people going through the Sahara ill-prepared. So I was reading that book right around the time of Farah's diagnosis. And before that, in fact, I was reading it in the hospital while we were there. And the other thing was I spoke to a biologist friend of mine and we went for a walk with her and I was asking her about, because I don't really understand, you know, recessive 
dominant recessive genes, how things get passed down, all that stuff. And I was trying to, essentially for two hours, I just grilled her about how it worked. And I remember one thing I said to her was, so our, my daughter Farah, who was only what, eight months at that point? No, I think it was like nine and a half. Okay. Very close. Yeah, nine maybe months. we already had an inkling something was up. I said, so she could carry some weird recessive gene that, that Vanessa and I gave her, like blue eyes. The, the conversation just turned into us talking about what she could be carrying in her genome from us that we wouldn't know about. So that and the fact that I was reading this book about dehydration, about the desert, but stories of people dying of thirst. And Pharaoh was literally at that moment kind of slowly dying of thirst from this genetic thing we'd given her without knowing. And so these two things happen at the same time and I just I can't stop thinking about that. You know, I'm not like a, I'm not that mystical or I don't sort of believe in, it's just a strange coincidence. Yeah, it's haunting. curious for you to share a bit of your experience interacting so much with the healthcare system because we've talked about the diagnosis and brief hospitalizations but there have also been so many medical appointments and so many blood tests and I mean every day you're providing medical care to your daughter but I'm especially wondering now about your interaction with doctors, with other providers. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit about what for each of you has been frustrating in your dealings with the healthcare system. And if something like this exists, what's been most helpful or useful or positive for you, for Farah, for your family? When the hospital system has failed us, it's extremely frustrating. Um, what does that look like? Going to emergency because Farah won't stop throwing up and is getting dehydrated or is dehydrated. And then for some reason in emergency, the pharmacy is like unable to understand how to make the liquid for the IV that she needs. And it taking like five hours for this to get worked out. Yeah, the reason we, if Farah is throwing up, if she can't keep anything down and she's getting dehydrated at home, we have to go to the hospital. That's the, the rule. And we have to go to the emergency so that she can be hooked up to an IV. And the IV bags they give her, I mean, are, it's like a joke. It's like 10 times the size of a normal IV bag. And she's tiny. It's bigger than her, it weighs more than her, but she just needs like so much water over eight or 12 hours, however long it runs. So the message is, go to emergency, they'll put her on IV right away. And it's common that we'll be there three or five hours sitting in emergency. And we're at the front of the line when we arrive. We don't wait because Farah is a file. I mean, they know she is. It's all in the system. And yeah, it can still take hours and hours and hours before this is... I guess it's just, it's just difficult to be 
to feel like you have to like fight for what your child needs and also you don't even really understand what they need <laughs> you know and you're sort of trying to be polite and you want to like work with the medical people and sometimes it just doesn't work so it's just like really frustrating I mean Sam you would know as a doctor but like I feel like the doctor on call wants to make a diagnosis you know in a sense they want to see what's going on they don't just want to be handed a piece of paper saying give this kid this mix of IV from the pharmacy you know they want the nurse do the vital signs do all this stuff get the little bracelet like it feels like all that ancillary stuff is more important than whereas the what we're always told is go there right away for the IV bag that's the only thing in our mind is get her on an IV because she's because she just pees so much she can't drink she can't hold anything down and they say you have like a limited amount of time to get her hooked up before damage is done well I'm not sure but I think she sustained acute kidney damage maybe that time they say a couple of times so that's been frustrating when she got her gastrostomy tube it was summer oh yeah like never go to the hospital in the summer or the weekend um and we sort of had no training after her surgery like they kept saying nurses would come by and show us and like it's not rocket science but there's still some things to show you it's a bit uh intimidating at the beginning it's a wound it's a there's a wound um we sort of had no one really show us once we're admitted and we get her the IV, then we're always like fighting to get out of there as quickly as possible. And sometimes it feels like we're almost like we have to prove something to get discharged. I don't know. Instead of working with them. It's just it's... awful being at the hospital too. I don't know. Does it have to be that awful? <laughs> There's no bed. There's like this weird couch. No bed for you guys, you mean? Yeah, sorry. There's a bed for Farah. Well, that's great. Um, and now that she's not in a crib, I can kind of imagine getting in that single bed with her, especially if they have those like safety bars. But yeah, there's no bed for the adults. Can I say one thing that annoyed me? There's this crib. Every time we've gone, they, they put us in a little, you know, emergency closed room with a crib bed because Farrah was, was young. And it says right on the base of the bed, right on the side, weight limit 300 kilograms, something like that. You know, these these are like, this is big, heavy-duty, expensive beds. Even though it's meant for a child, it's meant to hold more than a 20-kilogram or 10-kilogram child. A couple times, Vanessa's just crawled in with Farah because there's literally nowhere else in this room to lie down. It's four in the morning, you're exhausted, you've been there for hours, Farah needs to be held. And a nurse has come in and yelled at us for lying in the bed. And I'm like, sorry, it says right on the side of the bed that it can totally handle the weight. You're always kind of butting heads with everyone. Let us in as quickly as possible, and as Vanessa says, let us out as fast as possible. At one point, I was like, I'd really felt like I'd made my contribution to like medical education in Montreal, just because I felt like I had explained cystinosis to so many young medical staff. When I look back, I like feel bad for myself, like one and them. Like I don't know what I was talking, really talking about, and like I didn't have the energy for that teaching. I'm sure you've done a lot of teaching and you ought to be thanked. No, no, I... But what I hear is just that the hospital is a place where people get care, yes, but it's also a machine, it's a bureaucracy, it's a hierarchy, and I don't 
think Sullivan, those physicians are unhappy to be taking on a plan that's already prescribed. I think they're relieved. But I think what you're seeing is an inability to just do that. They have to do all the other steps of the protocol before they get to that, which is in complete opposition to what you're told is the priority for, not for your comfort, for your child's well-being. So that sounds really frustrating and difficult. And it's a funny tension to know exactly what she needs, and yet you can't go make the IV bag. I thought like, we could. <laughs> now, nah, maybe. I mean, no, I mean, the, the hospital has to do that yeah, they for have you. And if they can't because of staffing, because it's a little bit unusual in its recipe, then that must be really tough because it's the only place that can help you. It's all, Yeah, and it's unfair to the system because we usually end up going after midnight. More often than not, for some reason, it's a weekend. So there's always staffing. You know, it's always it's short-staffed anyway. I know there's management issues and all the bureaucratic stuff, but yeah, it's not fair. You know, there is a protocol, like you're saying. I mean, a whole intake protocol, I guess, even for the emergency, which, which always makes me amazed. Like, there must be a huge paper trail for Farah, for any repeat offender going to the hospital all the time. But it all seems like it's a brand new experience every single time. Mm-hmm. Even if we see the same doctors and the same and nurses, thing at the pharmacies that we deal with. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure this is a, something you think and talk about and read about and hear about all the time in your profession. But what is going on? But <laughs> well, then, I used to no, have to do it. Okay, right. <laughs> and then, I'd be like, "We all know what this is. Can you just like say what it is and move on?" But no, you have to. There's a song and dance. But at my own job, it's, so I'm saying that, but then I'm also like, everywhere is dysfunctional. It's people. That's the problem. The hospitals are run by people, unfortunately. Yeah. Any moments that stand out where you felt particularly reached out to or seen or helped? It, like in the medical system? Yeah. It's a bit of a cliche, but I think it's worth saying. Like, we're still really happy to be in Canada and Quebec for Farah's medical care. And almost all the doctors we've dealt with have been pretty great. And the nurses and the other support staff. Yeah, I mean... Unlike... There's limits to what they can do for us, but they're still like quite dedicated. They, they're always like asking how Sylvan and I are doing. They seem genuinely interested in Farah's, like, how she's doing and... Her as a whole person. Development. I'm trying to think if there's any specific encounter that stands well, out. One thing that, I don't know, not a specific encounter, but just to expand on what Nessie said, like we are, when we finally do get to see our doctor, and we have to go see our doctor, Ferris doctor, every month. Initially it was every week, then every two weeks. Now we're on a... Oh. I think every three or four months right now. Okay, every three or four happens. months. But on all of those visits, we had an unlimited amount of time with our doctor and our nurse. Nine o'clock, we go in, Farrah gets a bunch of blood taken, blood sent to the lab. We kind of kick around for half an hour, usually give her her, med- her medicine, which she needs at 9.30. Give her a snack, walk around, look at the gift shop, explore the kind of our favorite areas in the hospital, in the children's hospital. And then we go and meet the doctor and nurse and nutritionist. Farrah gets weighed and measured and 
Then we have the consultation with these three people and there's no rush. It could be two hours we're sitting in a room chatting with them. So in a sense, we get the care that you always want as a patient going to the hospital. You want someone to like sit down with you in a private room and just listen to everything and talk and discuss things. You know, there's, there's never a sense of... Well, I think sadly we're VIP. Fine. Yes, I guess we're, we're VIPs, but we're, we're given all of this attention, which you don't, which most people don't get at the hospital. You know? Yeah. I've never had this experience with any doctor. I just... Well, you know, I remember when I was diagnosed and I mentioned to your wife, who's my friend Catherine, and who's also a doctor, I said, um, well, you know, if something happens with Farrah, we just call the hospital and they put us through the nephrologist. And she was like, what? You can do that? I'm like, And at first I was like, for like two seconds, I felt like really happy and like privileged. And then I was like, oh, it's because we're in like a terrible situation. But that's part of the care we receive. You look at the emergency room, you, we walk in, you know, there's 50 families, kids throwing up, bloody noses, everyone's coughing, it's disgusting. And we bypass that and like, it might still take three to five hours to get an IV bag, but mm-hmm. we're still put in a room right away. And on our regular visits, we have, we have chats with our doctor. Kind of like this even. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's as relaxed as this. I don't know. It's, I I don't think this could exist for everyone. Not everyone needs this much time. You know, you don't need this if if you're have an ear infection. Vanessa, you've told me that having a child with an illness feels like it ties you to another time and to other places in the world where child health can't be taken for granted. Uh, as generally as it is here in Canada or in other countries like it. Can you tell me a little more about that? I guess like before Farah got sick, I just assumed she would be healthy, which sounds stupid, but I don't know. I did. Um, I don't know. So when I read books now, I just... You know, once upon a time in the past, kids died a lot. And if your kid... Here. Here, everywhere, everywhere. Kids just died, you know. Um, so, and it just a little bit, I don't know, just suddenly I feel like that's kind of our reality. That's more our reality. A reality where children are ill and they die. They still have like really happy moments, but illness is part of the landscape and then also other parts of the world and i hope that doesn't sound i don't know unlike other parts of the world there's parts of the world where kids have cystinosis and they have you know no treatment or they can't access medicine and it's so awful and even though we are lucky enough to get to for the treatments we were just describing i guess i just feel some connection to a part of the world where you can't count on your kid being healthy you can't count on out living your kid and that's the same thing for us unfortunately you can't count on your kid outliving you sorry yeah yes exactly we can't count on anything turns out but Sullivan and I we can't count on 
always being parents. Because of advances in gene therapy, I think mainly, there are some hopes that there might one day be better therapies or a cure. But Vanessa, you wrote to me that we don't want Farah to live her life waiting for a cure. We love her as she is. Sylvan, I was wondering how much space the prospect of a cure takes up in, in your mind and in your hopes. I don't know. It's sort of like the lottery, the old lottery fantasy. Um, it's nice to hope for it, but you absolutely can't count on it. So that's sort of where I am. Yeah, there's this gene therapy program. They've done six people. They've six participants seem to be doing okay, as far as I know. Will it work? If it works, will it be approved? If it's approved, is anyone, you know, the, the rights to the program, the IP of the, the, the program itself has been sold twice already since first diagnosis? There's the regular hopes about the thing just working and that it being a, a good one one and done treatment. But then there's just the reality of the medical, the corporate medical world of like, you know, programs being started and shut down and bought and sold and pricing, access, all that stuff. Even if the stuff works and it's available, is it available at a cost that would be covered in Canada. I mean, if the treatment was one or two million bucks a shot, we can't afford that. We could never raise that money. You know, then you're lobbying the, the federal government for coverage. And then, you know, I mean, it's just the, the prospect is just best case scenario. It's years and years and years. And she'll still need a kidney transplant. And, and doesn't it change the fact that she'll need a kidney transplant? Let's assume that the, the genetic therapy works. Every year she doesn't get that, there's more and more damage to her body to every cell in her body. So, I mean, just practically, it's like, it's hard to be really super hopeful about it. So she would have to have chemotherapy, which obviously it would be worth it for a cure, but that part also gives me a lot of uh, dread for her. So it's not nothing, you know? Um, Do you guys have anything else you want to say? Mm. I think we've said a lot. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Vanessa Sylvan, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. Thank you. That was my conversation with Vanessa Bono and Sylvan Lankin. If you'd like to learn more about cystinosis or support cystinosis research, check out the Cystinosis Research Foundation at cystinosisresearch.org. I'll also link to the site and other resources in the show notes. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate it on the platform of your choice and spread the word. And if you have any comments or guest suggestions, please don't hesitate to reach out through the show's website, practicingpod.com. That's practicing with a C. 
I'll be back with more conversations on practicing, so stay tuned. Practicing is hosted, written, and produced by me, Sam Freeman. Sarah Freeman provides invaluable editorial advice. Artwork is by Jeff Landman. Music is by Mr. Smith, made available under Creative Commons licensing. Thanks also to Juniper Belshaw, Jeff Dyke, Katerina Haddad, Jess Malls, Howard Mitnick, Ezra Siller, and Catherine Tang.